and welcome to another episode of Policy Pod. In this episode, we'll be talking about preconception, interconception, and the first thousand days of childhood life. Great, good stuff. Okay, so let's kick things off with a traditional question. Chandy, what did you do for your A-levels? Uh, so for, I um, was born and raised in Mumbai and um, I did my high school there. And the equivalent of the A-levels was the higher secondary school examination. And I um, was particularly keen on getting into medical school. So uh, I focused mainly on uh, biology, chemistry and then uh, physics, which was a requirement, followed by uh, an entrance exam, which is actually a national as well as uh, state-based exam, which you need to give. Uh, to give uh, to get into uh, medical school in India. So, uh, and depending on which state uh, you're applying to, uh, you have to give multiple exams sometimes. So, yeah, I was just preparing for different uh, med- medical entrance exams for the two states that I was uh, targeting. Um, and where? Um, yeah, so, where did you go for your for your undergraduate degree? Uh, yeah, so that was in a place, a city called Pune, uh, which is uh, around uh, 200 miles from Mumbai, uh, approximately. So, not too far. Um, so could come home for the weekends and things, but uh, but it had a great uh, medical school um, at the university there, and uh, I was there uh, for my five years of medical training as well as my um, internship. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you complete uh, those studies. When was that? Yeah, so I graduated in 2013 uh, from medicine, and then uh, for a year I was working as a junior doctor after completing my foundation year equivalent. Uh, so it's it's just called the internship there. So what they would call it, the FY one and two here. And uh, so I worked in Mumbai back. Um, I went back to Mumbai. It was a very urban setting, and I worked in sort of a private clinic, which was actually a dermatology clinic. It was very interesting, um, uh, quite different to where I did my internship, which was a very rural area. Uh, so uh, the kind of cases you saw and uh, the kind of things patients came in with was also uh, very different um, from both uh, settings. But um, around that time, I also started thinking of uh, what my interests were and um, and I started uh, developing this sort of desire to do a research-based uh, degree instead um, of purely focusing on clinical work. So um, that is when I decided to do a master's in public health instead, um, which is why, uh, which was what brought me to South Hampton in the UK um, in 2014. Great stuff. So the master's proceeds with uh, with lots of pace and uh, you start to specialise in an area then. How, how did you start your uh, PhD process? Yeah, so while I was doing my master's here in Southampton, so Southampton is, uh, you know, renowned for this field of uh, developmental origins, which we'll be talking about um, uh, soon. But uh, so I uh, heard about that during the lectures, but I had also heard about it while I was a med student in India, because uh, there have been a, uh, you know, coincidentally, one of the collaborating centres was in Pune, where I did my uh, medical school as well. So I thought that was quite interesting. And I worked with uh, some uh, professors in uh, the Medical Research Council in Southampton uh, near the hospital as a research assistant while I was doing my MSc. And that's when I met um, uh, Professor Mark Hansen, who was uh, looking for a research assistant at the time too. And uh, it was a very interesting collaborative project with the WHO at the time, uh, who were uh, trying to understand the risk factors in early life, which could affect health uh, both in before and during aging. So I um, I supported with some of the work on that, which is what gave me some of my preliminary ideas for the PhD project that I did um, subsequently uh, uh, on understanding these um, how these factors can be actually translated into policy, uh, because a lot of the thinking was related to intervention, uh, which was through clinical settings or uh, through 
sort of public health platforms at the time. So um, I will, I wanted to take a broader view looking at policy as well. Super. So that, that creates a really good uh, segue, I suppose, Mark, for uh, for you to introduce your, yourself and, 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 and to start with that same question. Uh, cast your mind back. What did you do for A-levels? Gosh, you are asking me to cast my mind back a long way, Charles. Um, uh, like Chandney, I did A-levels in chemistry, physics and biology. And like her, I felt that I wanted to be a doctor. So I was lucky enough to get a place to study medicine at Oxford. In those days, you um, did a degree in physiology uh, as part of preclinical training. So I did a, um, an undergraduate degree as part of my medical training and then was going to go to St. Thomas's Hospital in London to do clinical work. At that time, by that time, I think I realised that actually clinical medicine probably was not for me. Um, and I thought, well, really, what's been the most important thing in my life so far? And I thought, well, really, the teachers and the people who inspired me when I was at school, um, even though I wasn't terribly happy at school a lot of the time, there were one or two teachers who really helped me. And I thought, I'm going to train to be a teacher. Uh, so I did that at the University of Leeds and then went back to Oxford, actually did do a PhD um, and then became an academic, moved to the University of Reading and started to work in developmental biology. Um, from there, I moved to UCL, which was really the sort of the birthplace in England of, of physiology, um, and was there for 10 years, and then heard about the work of someone called David Barker, who was um, a doctor in Southampton who'd been studying historical populations, um, people born in this country in the early part of the 20th century and studying how aspects of their early lives led 50, 60, 70 years later to their risks of the common diseases, heart disease, diabetes, um, high blood pressure. And as a physiologist at this stage, teaching physiology at UCL, I was fascinated by this. And so when the opportunity came to move to Southampton, um, I had snatched it up and so sort of moved here in well, just over 20 years ago now, in 2000. So we're skirting the issue, but we should dive right in. DOHAD, Developmental Origins of Health and Disease. What is it in a, uh, in a nutshell? Who'd like to take a crack at that one? Uh, well, I suppose as one of the architects of the International DOHAD Society, uh, and I think I, I probably coined the term DOHAD um, as we were in the run-up to a meeting that we were organising, a large international meeting in Brighton in 2002. Um, so it really was based on David Barker's ideas that actually the common diseases that uh, affect the majority of the population, in fact, account for the major component of mortality, whatever we think about infectious diseases following, following COVID and so on, actually cardiovascular disease is still the main killer, that those diseases are partly due to how our lives as adults, you know, how much exercise we get, whether we eat a healthy diet, um, whether we smoke and so on and so on. And they're partly due to the genes that we inherited, each of us from our mum and dad, which make us all different. But actually put those two things together and there's still a huge gap in why some people suffer from these diseases or are at higher risk than others. And Barker's observations really led to the idea that it was early development, um, development in utero as fetuses and then in the first two or three years of infancy that were so important in setting that risk and that once those processes have been set in train, um, they will influence your trajectory of risk, if you like, the um, degree to which you respond to the challenges of everyday life, 
better or worse, and so your risk of having these diseases. So it became known as the developmental origins of health and disease. With the particular project that the three of us have been working on, um, we've been thinking more so uh, about the um, uh, about preconception rather than necessarily the first thousand days, um, uh, which lots of people are, are aware of as being critically important to the to the life course for uh, uh, for individuals. Chandni, maybe a, a bit of an overview about the uh, about the preconception project that we've been working on will yeah. be useful at this point. Yeah, sure. So, uh, as you said, one of the reasons uh, we've been looking at preconception in the last few years uh, was because, um, one, because a lot of trials, well-designed, good quality trials during pregnancy only showed modest effects for preventing some of the outcomes that Mark mentioned, like uh, for the long-term health of the mother as well as uh, for the offspring and also because um, um, interventions for for example to prevent weight gain or weight loss during pregnancy can be actually quite difficult um, and uh, uh, the idea was that uh, if this can be done before pregnancy it would be not just a practical thing for the uh, women as well uh, but also would be um, a better opportunity to engage with people who are both planning a pregnancy as well as not planning one uh, to actually uh, uh, have, think about what would act, uh, what would be needed to uh, prepare for the pregnancy or even provide uh, contraception, for example, if they were not intending to pre- uh, get pregnant. So um, the landmark uh, Lancet series, which came out uh, a few years ago, um, led by uh, Professor Mary Barker and Professor Judith Stephenson, um, uh, sort of publicized this uh, period even further and uh, led to the development of uh, this group called the UK Preconception Partnership as well, who has been advocating for uh, uh, this period to be uh, considered more seriously uh, in terms of uh, its effect on population health in general. Uh, because uh, one could argue that, you know, we're talking about women's health from not just 18 to 45, which is often considered the reproductive age, but we're also talking about adolescent health and uh, the health of their future children and their future children. So uh, it, it really provides a lot of opportunities, uh, not just for preventing non-communicable disease or diabetes and these factors, but also to improve um, sort of holistic well-being um, and uh, nutrition as well as um, other risk factors such as alcohol, smoking and many other issues uh, that can be looked at during this period. So we'll include the uh, uh, the links to the Lancet series in the show notes so that people can read those in more in more detail. I think that the, the statistic is something like um, uh, uh, only one in two pregnancies are planned. Um, so uh, that that leaves a, a good chunk of, uh, of the population who may not be uh, considering their preconception health because they don't necessarily know that they're in a preconception phase. I, I, I wonder whether um, uh, uh, how it is that you might start to identify particular groups to be able to, to message towards. Um, who, who do we know that would be the right people to be able to start and who would be the, the messengers to be able to convey that message? So I suppose, as Chanley said, the research that we were doing in Dohad led to the idea that if you were going to promote a healthy pregnancy, you had to help the woman. And in fact, increasingly we see her partner too, to be healthy before they conceive. But uh, as you just said, Giles, that's not easy. Many, many pregnancies are not planned. Uh, And in fact, of course, most women don't realise that they are pregnant until perhaps the end of the first three months, the first trimester of pregnancy. So the science has shown that that's by then trying to intervene, perhaps to make diet healthier and so on, is too late. So 
then you're forced to think, well, so we do, do we need to do things in the preconception period? But I'm sure many of the people listening to this, and actually our colleagues in medicine too, um, whether they're nurses or doctors or public health people, will say, well, what do you mean by preconception? As Chandy said, is that the whole of the reproductive life of the woman from the time when she starts to have her periods as a perhaps 12, 13, 14-year-old girl to when she goes through the menopause? Because if so, aren't we just starting to get into the territory where we're saying, well, so women's lives should be dominated largely by the fact that they could be mothers. And so that's the most important thing. That's a terribly dangerous and unethical road to go down. So we began to think, well, could we focus this a bit better? Especially given the idea that maybe the kind of interventions that we're thinking about in perhaps reducing alcohol intake, not smoking, healthier diet, perhaps regulating body weight a bit, getting more physical exercise. Perhaps these don't need to be undertaken by mum, potential mums and dads for more than maybe three or six months, perhaps before they conceive. So is there a time in the story of having children and, and growing families when we could particularly focus this. And I suppose that led us to think, well, what about in the interconception period, after a couple have had their, perhaps their first baby, um, but before they have the next one, which is likely to be a year, 18 months, two years plus out. That's a time when, for the number one, they are very focused on health and well-being issues. They've gone through all the joy as well as the trials and tribulations of pregnancy, thinking about the health of their, of their child, but perhaps also beginning to think about their own health too and trying to get bits of their life back to normal. It's a time, of course, when perhaps for the first real time in their lives, they've actually interacted with healthcare professionals. Um, and it's a time when uh, policymakers, public health officials are obviously very aware of this change in the in the population. So we felt, well, could we focus on the interconception period as a time when we might be able to promote a healthy lifestyle, potentially, of course, a bit late for the first child, but maybe to help the parents and the next child and see whether we could really operationalise, if you like, the Dohad idea um, in, a, in, the, in the UK population. So, looking to be able to uh, uh, to operationalise the uh, the findings from from Dohad, um, what what were the first concrete steps that you chose to uh, to take, Shani? Yeah. So, um, as I said uh, earlier about um, you know a lot of networks have been uh, developed to try and operationalise uh, some of these findings from Dohad, and they often have uh, their own sort of agenda or a particular target group that they look at. For example, uh, the preconception partnership look predominantly on women's health in uh, the preconception period. Uh, there are some other groups that look at um, early childhood, for example. So we, um, in 2020, um, early 2020, we had actually organized a meeting in Southampton, which was a multidisciplinary group of experts, uh, a lot of leading uh, researchers, as well as um, policy experts from the field of um, obstetrics and gynecology, as well as pediatrics, and um, including uh, schools, as well as local uh, authorities as well. Um, at an NIHR BRC funded meeting in Southampton uh, where we tried to discuss how uh, we could integrate these uh, preconception ideas and interventions and um, uh, with the clinical uh, current clinical models um, in a better fashion so that it's actually delivered both to the 
uh, women and couples and their partners planning a pregnancy as well as include these unplanned pregnancies that we just discussed uh, so that in a way it becomes a routine part of the continuum of care before, during and after pregnancy. And um, through this meeting, it was seen that we could see that, um, of course, people work a bit in silos uh, with within their departments. And um, it's, it's a little challenging to actually um, engage healthcare practitioners when they have many priorities during pregnancies that are uh, pressing needs of, you know, the infant's growth or what the immediate outcomes would be for the actual delivery and so on. Um, and in parallel, we had our own uh, sort of research work that indicated that the healthcare practitioners didn't feel equipped enough to um, have some of these conversations uh, with uh, their patients. So um, from these discussions, it was clear that we should actually, the time was now uh, right to actually start off with the actions and we didn't have to wait for more research. And one of the periods where we could target people clearly was the interconception period. And about this time, um, Mark also received uh, a grant from the Rank Foundation, who were keen on taking the agenda forward from a nutrition perspective. Um, so we um, used this sort of nutrition as well as a prevention of non-communicable disease lens to look at this interconception period um, in this project uh, where we worked with um, another PhD candidate, Daniela Watson, who and, and of course with you, Giles, um, uh, to understand what actually is out there in the literature uh, uh, to support uh, the or, or to harness the this period to actually... Um, use this um, uh, period between two pregnancies uh, to act uh, to prepare for the next pregnancy as well as improve the health of the parent um, and we also looked at uh, sort of local policies and policies and guidelines in the UK to see if the conversations in the policy space were actually thinking on the same lines and if there were existing programs that we could link with super so the uh, uh the the generous funding from uh, from the rank foundation has allowed for that um uh, uh, literature review to be able to be completed what are the what are the hopes for the next steps for uh, for that process of engagement we'd hoped um by now to be able to <clears throat> have an in person meeting with some of the key stakeholders for this area of course covid has meant that everything has had to be online but we're still planning um that we hope within the next 6 or 12 months in the meantime um as chani indicated we've written up our ideas into a sort of policy brief that we can use to take to some um members of the government uh in order to engage them with these ideas and see whether or not it fits with ongoing agendas. And we think it does in a way because the idea of family hubs as a we know, of course, the Sure Start Centre uh, program was um, was stopped some years ago. But the family hub idea, I think, uh, th that's um, been broached by the current government, might be a way in which young couples and their children could engage with um, <clears throat> community health workers and indeed with other uh, um, uh, couples who are in the same position. Um, and so that might well feed into an interconception um, uh, behavioural change um, uh, protocol. We're working um, with the professional organisations um, in in healthcare, so particularly with the International Federation for Gynaecology and Obstetrics, FIGO, um, and in fact have developed with them some very simple tools. One that Janney is very much involved in was a, a nutrition checklist, a very simple way of just looking at um, a woman and her partner's um, nutrition around the time that they 
conceive their child or even before, um, just as a way of identifying some of the common things that it's easy to rectify um, and which uh, sadly actually affect a large number of women and their partners before pregnancy, whether or not they're anemic, the overall structure of their diet, is it very much based on fast food or is it a more balanced diet? Are they taking folic acid as a, a nutritional supplement in preparation for pregnancy or, uh, and, and so on? So bringing the, the um, policymakers into the story is important, bringing the healthcare professionals, especially their organisations in. And then, of course, we have to think about how we're going to engage the public with this more widely. Um, and that's something that we're beginning to think seriously about. I think it's 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 difficult, but it's certainly true that without public support for the for this agenda, um, we're probably not going to make any progress. Yeah. So so public awareness and engagement with this is critical to be able to deliver the change that the research um, uh, provides evidence towards. Um, Chandy, what's what's the approach in terms of being able to get the public on board with this? Yeah, so uh, coming back to the tools Mark mentioned, for example, when it comes to nutrition, our work uh uh, we saw that these conversations don't necessarily happen always uh, during the routine antenatal care appointments once the women are pregnant. And um, of course, we already talked about how uh, women don't necessarily go for preconception health visits unless they're actually facing issues related to fertility. Uh, quite often, that's when they'll go to an OBGYN uh, to discuss this further. So, um, in, for, so we've actually developed an online version of the checklist uh, in collaboration with uh, University College Dublin as well as FIGO, the um, International Network for uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And in a way that actually empowers people to complete the checklist online, see their score, and then they can take this with them uh, to the healthcare practitioner that they're about to meet um, uh, and discuss that further. Um, we know both, uh, we've done an acceptability study for the checklist, uh, modifying it with the NICE, based on the NICE guidelines in the UK. And we saw that most uh, people thought uh, that the checklist was important and a lot of the contents were actually things that they hadn't necessarily discussed during their antenatal visits. So these were women who were either currently pregnant or were pregnant recently. And at the same time, healthcare practitioners uh, felt that this would be a useful tool as well, uh, though they did express issues related to time constraints that they have during their appointments, uh, which sort of again makes the argument of being able to fill this online by themselves. And uh, these are evidence-based recommendations um, that have been uh, cross-checked by the international organization. So um, again, takes away the risk of people Googling things related to nutrition, which is again, um, uh, you know, uh, healthcare practitioners are uh, have been uh, cited as a trusted uh, source of information by uh, uh, women as well as people planning a pregnancy in different studies very often. And people are aware of the issues and misinformation on the internet as well. So um, having uh, such trustworthy clinical tools would be helpful both in the preconception as well as in the interconception period for weight management and um, uh, dietary behaviour change. That's brilliant. Well, we'll include links to the nutrition checklist uh, in the show notes as well so that people can read both the, uh, uh, the science in the uh, in the Lancet series as well as find out more about the applicability of the nutrition checklist to, uh, to them and to their families. So so we've got a good understanding about what, um, uh, what individuals can do and we've got a good understanding about what healthcare practitioners can do. 
What do you want to see in terms of change from the policy audience, uh, Shandy? Uh, so it's it's very important to note that the onus of uh, uh, the change that needs to be done to prevent some of these risk factors should not be uh, shouldered just by the patients or people planning a pregnancy, as well as the healthcare practitioners. Uh, we know that a lot of the risk factors, for example, obesity is in the UK strongly associated with uh, the lower income groups uh, and areas which have a higher deprivation, uh, both for childhood obesity as well as for obesity um, in uh, mothers. Um, and we also know that uh, early childhood development programs show a lot of progress, uh, promise uh, for uh, not just the child's health throughout the life course, but also future productivity and um, employment earnings and other such factors. Uh, so addressing these health inequalities from the start is important. And um, uh, we, Mark has mentioned the Healthy Start Scheme, for example, and earlier there used to be uh, short start centers. There are now uh, further programs such as family hubs planned and it will be interesting to see how they can use this targeted approach for low-income communities uh, to actually address um, some of these interconception risk factors because they do look at families who have young children so potentially this does overlap with the interconception period in many ways. So uh, even the policies would have to be multi-sectoral so we are not just talking about the Department of Health and Social Care or OHID formerly called Public Health England uh, uh, you know the Department of Transport, Department of Finance, we do need uh, communication between uh, various departments to actually uh, support uh, enabling environments for behaviour change. Um, and, uh, for example, even Department of Education uh, sort of working through school-based um, interventions as well for health literacy and health education. So this really is demanding a, uh, a cross-governmental uh, uh, systematic change to be able to address this, this common theme which affects yes. all members of of society, but particularly those from um, uh, from lower economic social groups would stand to, to benefit the, the most from this. Mark, Mark, I wonder the economics of the situation, how how feasible is it for people to be able to, to do this uh, uh, on their own, um, thinking about uh, food deserts in the uh, uh, in the UK, um, and the uh, and of course everything against the the, the cost of living uh, uh, crisis at the moment as well. From from a policy um, uh, perspective, what what change are you looking at in terms of the the economics of this? I think first of all the recognition that this time of life is a time when economic investments produce a return that's unmatched with. Um, such investments later in life. Um, the um, James Heckman from University of Chicago, the Nobel Laureate in Economics, has calculated that that return has about a tenfold factor, so a pound invested um, in in the thousand days and in early life and in the preparation for that thousand days, as we've just been saying, um, can give a return of at least £10 over the course of the life course. And the return comes from improved um, education, improved productivity, as, as Chandney said, um, social justice, but also things like uh, the need perhaps for social support later, um, reduction in, in crime, and you know just about everything uh, in life, actually, when you look at it has its origins to a degree in early life. And so the recognition that investing in that time in the life course is not just a good idea, it's it's a, it's absolutely essential, I think is one point that we need to get across. It's a time in life because it's a time when the plasticity of our developing bodies is set, when 
you can't, if you don't get it right, you can't fix it later. It, it's not like some other investments, perhaps in, I don't know, in, in policing or in road safety or something where arguably if we can't afford to do it this year, maybe we could afford to do it later. Um, for each person, that early time in their lives is really their one chance and the chance, obviously, for their parents to help them to lead the healthiest life possible. And so if we don't follow our obligation really to them from a moral and ethical point of view of giving them that best start with the investment that's required, um, then actually we will be letting them down. It's relatively cheap. The Life Lab program that we run in Southampton, which brings children from Southampton schools into our hospital to tell them a bit about our work in which we've shown improves what's called their health literacy, their engagement with the issues we've been talking about. We estimate that costs about £60 per child. And you can change a young person's attitude and their knowledge of this area for 60 quid. And, you know, the consequences of that for their lives are sort of almost unimaginably large. So it's a phenomenal bargain. But unfortunately, because it's always seen as a time in life when naturally occurring things happen, pregnancy and, you know, um, it's easy to just say, well, we'll just let that happen and we'll put it on the back burner. There are more pressing issues. And, and I suppose that that thing of the the benefit coming much later on in life, uh, and the political incentives not necessarily being there to uh, to make an investment now for something which will uh, uh, show its benefit in 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 many years to come. That's a very good point, Jars, and I think to a certain extent the Dohad community have perhaps not always focused on the some of the scientific issues that they ought to have been explaining to, to policymakers. Barker, David Barker's ideas focused initially very much on um, mortality from common non-communicable diseases, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and so on. But actually, we realise now that those, the early uh, months and years, have an enormous effect on mental development, neural development of the child, the baby and child, so that not just their um, aspects of the application of their intelligence, but also their emotional development and something called their executive function, which is really how they um, <clears throat> begin to take control of their lives in decision making, in concentration at school and being able to conduct tasks and listen to instructions and these all those things are to a much greater degree than we used to think set in those first perhaps two three four years so there is a very short-term agenda here promoting that neurocognitive and emotional executive um, function development in the next generation of children uh, again is not something we can postpone and it will have enormous impact in the short term so it brings it very much into the remit of the electoral, electoral cycle really of policies over the next say three to five years so the focus for our conversation today has been really quite uk specific um but my assumption would be that this has um uh, benefits to other parts of the world as well um uh, uh, particularly those that we see that have uh, rapidly developing um, uh, middle classes, with all of the um, uh, the trappings and uh, and uh, and health challenges that are brought forward um, from uh, 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 those changes in in diet and, and lifestyle. Um, Chandy, how how do you find uh, that this uh, the the learning from this work might be applicable for um, uh, for your nation of birth? 
Yeah, uh, the learning is applicable and we've also learned a lot from um, uh, the uh, birth cohorts and uh, work that David Barker has uh, done in countries such as um, India and South Africa where uh, these transitioning populations, as we call them, are facing a triple burden in a way. One is of uh, the urban increase in uh, obesity and overnutrition. Uh, there's the existing issues related to undernutrition and underweight, uh, especially in women who have uh, issues such as um, anemia and uh, low weight before they enter pregnancy and also uh, issues related to micronutrient deficiencies and uh, vitamin deficiencies uh, that are ongoing. Uh, so you may also have people who have obesity but are uh, having micronutrient deficiencies at the same time and um, there are urban and rural differences within it. So there are many sort of layers to the problem in uh, low and middle income countries and um, a lot of their uh, governments are uh, keen on improving maternal nutrition nutrition status and um, early childhood development, uh, particularly what we call the first thousand days, uh, so from conception to uh, the child's second birthday, uh, has been a key period that um, several governments are looking at. But uh, we do uh, have, be we have been working with uh, so several groups such as the WHO, the Partnership for Maternal Newborn and Child Health and uh, other NGOs to actually incorporate these DOHAD concepts within their agenda and use a long-term lens. Um, rather than looking only at short-term outcomes related to uh, maternal survival or child survival, but actually looking at the child's uh, healthy growth and development and uh, long-term uh, productivity and factors that we mentioned earlier. Um, even within uh, European or uh, Western contexts, uh, we do know that the, there are some inequalities related to ethnicity when it comes to some of the risk factors. Uh, for example, for gestational diabetes, we know the risk of GDM, as we call it, is higher in uh, South Asian or Asian populations. And um, in the UK, there are certain targeted programs to address this and screen for them as well. But uh, we will have to see whether the existing interventions are um, effective enough to actually um, catch these on time. And um, some of the preventive services that we mentioned earlier uh, and using this preconception and interconception approach will be helpful. For example, someone who's had diabetes during pregnancy for their first pregnancy is at a higher risk of actually getting it again during their second pregnancy, but intervening between these two pregnancies may actually help prevent that second time. So um, again, uh, highlighting the importance of that postpartum period. So this very much has a global health perspective. Um, we talked a little earlier on about non-communicable diseases and the fact they're set up, the risk is set up so much in our early lives. So 70% of the um, mortality around the world every year is can be accounted for by these non-communicable diseases far more than infections. Sadly, 80% of those deaths actually occur in low to middle income countries. And in a way, to my mind, one of the tragedies is that as we collectively around the world try to improve our lives, a little bit of socioeconomic progress, a little bit of additional economic benefits and wealth, if you like, sadly brings with it an increased risk of these diseases. So the risk of such diseases is um, unfortunately higher in many low and middle income populations who are becoming a little wealthier and in high-income countries like us here in the UK, it's associated more with the with poverty. So, um, if your early development sets you up to 
predict, if you like, a rather poor environment. And then as a developing adolescent and young adult, you're exposed to a richer environment, then you're more likely to be mismatched and therefore to have an increase in risk of these non-communicable diseases. So it's very much uh, an agenda that's on the um, <clears throat> uh, on the minds of many um, uh, governments in low and middle income countries and as Chandy said the World Health Organization um, and I think we all especially in the global north in high income countries have a moral duty to try to invest and to secure support for healthy early development in countries that are less fortunate. Of course it fits very well with all the other challenges not only the enormous um, holes in the economy generated by COVID, but of course migration, um, social mobility, um, fragile and humanitarian, um, uh, fragile environments and humanitarian crises. Certainly, and when when you think about where the uh, uh, where the birth rates are uh, uh, in in the or the higher birth rates are in the uh, in the globe, it, it's not in those um, uh, global north uh, countries that you mentioned, but it's actually in those uh, uh, low middle income uh, nations. So, arguably, the, the benefit to uh, to uh, humanity overall is to put the focus into uh, programs in in those those parts of the world. Mm. Um, the other thing, I suppose, I should have said. <clears throat> rather self-serving. So Dr. Lucy Green and I in the medical school have <clears throat> just uh, written a book called What Makes a Person? Secrets of the First Thousand Days, which is aimed <clears throat> very much at potential parents, young people. Um, so that will be published, I think, in November. Um, and it is very much aimed at a broad audience to explain not just the importance of a thousand days, but how we might prepare for it as a society, uh, as a whole. That's great. Well, that, that plug will also be included in the in the show notes there, Professor Hansen. Um, in the meantime, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much for listening to today's Policy Pod. If you'd like to leave feedback for us or leave a comment, please feel free to do so on your chosen platform. And if you'd like to find out more information about our work, you can visit www.southampton.ac.uk forward slash public policy. Mm-hmm.